0: On the podcast, April hardcovers are all the rage in the solar system of your imagination. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's uncompromising honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talked to David Weber this time on the reissue of his great science fiction novel, The Apocalypse Troll. That book is now out in a spiffy new trade paperback edition. It's a great read, a very cool science fiction concept, and it's a Weber where a great deal of time is spent in modern times, our times, and in the modern military milieu, which is also cool. And of course, there's more David Weber as we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now, here's the news We have an April ebook sale, and it's a doozy of bargainiferous proportions. King Jerry's Spaceship, April Jerry Pornell ebook sale. To celebrate the new Starborn and Godsons mass market edition, we are dropping prices on all Jerry Pornell ebooks. $2 off the ebook for Starborn and Godsons by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Stephen Barnes. And $1 off ebooks such as The Legacy of Herod by Jerry Pornell, Larry Niven, and Steve Barnes, and Beowulf's Children. Those are the two sequels to Starborn and Godsons. The Best of Jerry Pornell, edited by John F. Carr, is also $1 off. Mamelukes janissaries lord of janissaries footfall and oh so many more anything the late great jerry pornell had a hand in we are discounting at the bain website and across all of our ebook retailers so check it out sale ends april 30th hey the bain april original hard covers and trade paperbacks are out out now is rich man's sky by will mccarthy An international team of elite military women masquerading as space colonists are set to infiltrate and neutralize the largest and most dangerous project in human history. But nothing is that simple when rich men control the sky, as everyone involved is about to discover. And out in April is 1636 Caliban's War by Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters. Domingos Fernandez Calabar started out as a military advisor to the Portuguese in Brazil, but these days the Portuguese have a new label for Calabar, traitorous dog. Now Calabar helps the Dutch fleet strike at Portuguese and Spanish interests on land and sea. 1636 Calabar's War by Charles E. Gannon and Robert E. Waters and Rich Man's Sky by Will McCarthy are now available at booksellers everywhere. Check them out. Welcome David Weber back to the podcast. Hey, David. Hi, David Weber. Hang on. I'm going to click up my little bio here. Although I think I could do it verbatim by now. You would oh, think, right? It's, uh, it's, oh,
1: I am hurt,
0: hurt. Uh, David Weber. Uh, there's, let's see, let me just guess uh, eight million books in print at this point. Um, yes that's what it says <laughs> eight million copies of his book 30 titles on the new york times bestseller list over over uh time and um a science fiction powerhouse says our biography which i helped write but i think Corinda put that in um most of all he's the creator of the vastly popular honor harrington series um of which many uh, of those are, have made the New York Times bestseller list. The creator, the the um, it's the Basel series called
1: uh, the Norfressa books.
0: The Norfressa books, yeah.
1: And... The War God series, whatever you know. I yeah. I don't think I ever actually gave it an official official handle.
0: The War God Zone. Man, I want more of those.
1: <laughs> uh, hey, 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 hey. Uh, Tony's already told me my next solo prod. The other Tony. OK, mm-hmm. uh, has already told me that uh, my next solo solo project for Bang, uh needs to be the sequel to um, Sword of the South, um, which I def- definitely want to write once we get things like COVID and uh, the safehold book that is for tour that is two years overdue uh, and a few minor problems like that uh, dealt with uh, that will be my next, uh, solo, uh, Bain project.
0: Very good. And what, what will be coming out is by the way. All right. So David got started back in, um, the early nineties and Jim Bain bought a bunch of books all at once. Right. And, um, and one of those, um, not this one we're going to talk about, but another one, uh, was uh the one that the governor that governor is sequel to correct
1: prequel it's prequel to prequel. prequel to yeah uh path and of so, the fury
0: yeah path of the fury yeah
1: yeah and it became in fury born uh, because uh the real reason for that is that a lot of people had been asking me when they where they could get path of the fury and hardcover and i'm like it was issued as a mass market uh and i don't think you know except for jim and the um library bindings on the first few Honor Harrington's when he went back to do the hardcovers. Normally that doesn't happen, especially for standalone books. I mean, I know that Bain is releasing the leather bound of the Honor Harrington's now in limited edition, but as a general rule, if it's a standalone book and it's in paper, they're not going to go back and reissue it in hardcover. So what I did is I did the prequel to Path of the Fury. Uh, Alicia DeVries life from the time she was about 13 uh, up through the end up through the point at which she meets uh, Tisiphanie at the beginning of uh, Path of the Fury and we bound them together into a single hardcover as in Fury Born so over half of that book is brand new material but it also contains the original uh, Path of the Fury and I really, really was hesitant about doing that because I wrote the entire uh, original Path of the Fury in under two months. Uh, I mean, it just came together. And I was really afraid that I wouldn't be able to match that same flow coming at another book in the series, but I think it worked. So the the book that you just mentioned, uh, Governor uh, with Richard Fox uh, is set Three four hundred years before *Path of the Fury*, um, and what it deals with actually is the, well, what the books we are doing will deal with is the creation of the empire that Elysius serves. Um, and in the in the very first book, uh, in *Governor*, uh, you begin to see the connection between. Uh, New Dublin, the planet that Alicia's mother's family is from, uh, and the Murphy dynasty, and you understand why tradition, the loyalty to the crown is such bred into their bones tradition back there. Um, I I enjoyed it. I think it's good. Um, I believe that you have inveigled a short story out of us. (laughs) uh that uh that richard is going to take the the first uh the first pass on um yeah there will that will be
0: um come out may 15th that's short story and then the book governor it's the next uh major weber original project which is um collaboration collaboration yes but it's it's it hasn't been published before
1: (laughs) it's no 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 And I think um, Eric and I are supposed to have *In Fireborn* uh, due uh, out in October, um, yes. and uh, we're experiencing a few glitches in in the production process right now. Um, but I'm I'm working on them. I'm working on them. Okay. Um, so you know, and I know I know Bang can put books through production faster than anybody else. So if I get it to you, like two weeks before release date everything will be fine you don't, know it's like don't do that <laughs> don't think so no don't no. do that yeah. i you well,
0: know i you i remember one time that you did quite a major rewrite of about a thousand words on sort of the south um and we had to get that that was a pretty fast turnaround. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah yeah but, well and
0: i mean you well, know we I'll, want the books to be as great as possible of course so yeah.
1: we did it well and well, Tony, Tony um, has has uh, the other Tony, uh, Tony without a Y, mm-hmm. um, has um, yeah, yeah, has um, made it a uh, uh, a rule uh, that there she's not going to schedule one of my books till she has the manuscript. Uh, partly because she doesn't want to break me, you know, if I'm running late trying to, to ram it through. But also because there have been some issues that have to do with concussions and COVID, and, you know, little so you things keep like falling that. downstairs and having trees fall on you. And I never fell downstairs. Oh, okay. Okay. Can you trip on um, some new flooring, though? What was that? No, was, no, 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 hurt
0: yourself, but...
1: no, 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 in, uh, in Georgia. Uh-huh. And uh, I had just come in from, uh, from uh, broad daylight and um, the I was still wearing my sunglasses and nobody had warned me that there was a step down into the next room. Uh-huh. And it was a full step down. It was like seven, eight inches of step. And so I've got a gun bag in each hand. I've got my sunglasses on, it's dark. I step in and this, there's no floor where my foot expected to find it. And with my hands occupied, there was no way I could even try to catch myself. Uh, so I hit the floor flat on my face and kept sliding across it till I hit a solid obstacle with the top of my head that stopped me. Um, and that was the day before Dragon Con. So I did, I have no memory at all of that Dragon Con. People tell me I did fine. (laughs) Okay, but I'm like, okay, good. I'm glad to hear it, you know. Um, But yeah, that was, yeah. And I had just really and truly started getting back into the groove, okay? Because it took me, God, two years to really get my focus back on that. Uh, and I was cooking with gas. Uh, Jacob and we, I did you, the had some issues. you had
0: some health issues is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. At,
1: yeah. R- Richard, Richard and I got uh, governor done and then COVID came along. Mm. So I'm like, okay, fine. I can take a hand. <laughs> um, easy.
0: Do it as you can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, doing it as you, you know, doing a little bit for David Weber is like a major career for most people. <laughs>
1: yeah um the um once upon a time um in the in the long ago days of my youth um i did um, three quarters of a million words a year um which is actually kind of on a par for some of the old pulp writers um who had to do it all with a typewriter, but who didn't bother with second drafts, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, and I, I can't do that anymore. That's uh, a lot.
0: I, I mean, it, it, most people, you know, a, a Weber can be two hundred thousand words long, but most books are a hundred thousand words long. Right? I know. I know. Share
1: point five. You know. Sherry keeps telling me, saw them in half, saw them in half. And I'm like, yeah. but that's not where the storyline ends. And okay. she's like,
0: but which way would you saw them this way or?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you could, you, you could kind of, I guess you could do like, okay. Um, David's written another huge book. Here's the first half of it in June. And we'll let you have the second half of it in August, I guess. Uh, but I just, I've never been comfortable To me, the story has to go to the point at which the story ends, okay? And if it's a series, then it has to go to the point at which that installment of the story ends. You Mm -hmm. can't just arbitrarily say, oops, words are too, you know, too many words, got to stop. And it's it's not nice to do to readers. Well, you know, it's kind of like, kind of (laughs) like, okay, I... My, our, our, our niece by marriage, Jessica, uh, was not, she's not reading is not really her, you know, primary form of entertainment. So many, many years ago, we took her to see the uh, Fellowship of the Ring. And we came out of the theater and we're like, well, uh, what did what, you think of it? And she said, well, it didn't really have much of an ending, did it? <laughs> You know, we're like, uh, it's a trilogy, honey. <laughs> you Are you know? aware? She's like, yeah. like, oh, well, that makes a lot more sense. Um, but, yeah, I, I just, to me, like I say, you know, I can't <sighs> commercially, it might be better if I could just say, okay, I'm done now kind of thing, but I can't stop until the story's done, Yes. Yeah. when I'm done. Um,
0: well, it seems to have worked, and the thing about it, you know, Tony and I have, have said this to each other before. It's like writers can do what writers can do. And you try to get them to do what they do best at, at their best. And that's what you do as an editor. You don't you yeah. don't try to yank them around into something else. So, well,
1: I've yeah. often said that one of the things that makes uh, a, a really good editor, uh, and Bain's been good about this, you know, um, is that if they see a problem, with a story they explain the problem that they see to the author and then let the author go fix it rather than saying okay i think to make this work what you're gonna have to do is okay yeah.
0: oh that never works because the writer will not be able to do it yeah that's because it's not their thing it's
1: well it's kind of it's kind of like it's kind of like cover art um I have a little bit different attitude towards cover art from a lot of authors because I did so much PR work, and I worked with so many artists. And I understand that the more minute the direction you give the artist, the more constrained the artist feels, and therefore, you are not going to get that artist's best work okay, now I love David Mattingly. I mean, he's like, okay, which uniform is she in for this cover? You know, what rank is she? How many insignia? You know, how many stars? You know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. David Mattingly is the uh, main cover artist for the Honor the series at this point. Yeah. So. Um, but I don't try to tell him, yes, and by the way, she is, you know, whatever. I mean, that's, and the other side of it is that Cover art, it's its really, really good when the cover art reflects a scene in the book, okay? And David's, you know, pretty good about that too. But its it's the primary function of cover art is to draw you to the book, okay? And the stronger the art, the more likely you are to be drawn to it. Uh, so it's it's part of the whole. Um, for want of a better term, the marketing format is is how the cover art represents the, for want of a better term, uh, the feel of the book, yeah, rather the than the exact you know imagery of the book. Um, for example, I'm looking at the Apocalypse Troll cover behind you, and I do not remember Ludmilla <laughs> being dressed like that when she went after the troll. I'm sorry, you know, I I yeah. understand. Yeah. Well, I, there,
0: I mean, that would that's the way that uh, Aston probably imagines her. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that that may be. You know.
0: He spent a lot of time trying to get her out of his mind.
1: At the yeah. Well. Of the book. Well, you know, he's uh, like, he's like, she's 19 and I'm 58. That's you know, right. Guy well, that's big. what he thought. Yeah. And well, that's the, what she uh, thought. Yeah.
0: And she's incredibly muscled because she grew up on a heavy gravity world. So,
1: well, and her, her little, her little fellow traveler uh, pushes some of that too, uh, as well as the, the heavy grav. No, that's uh, right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, let's talk
0: I'll, about that. All right. Out okay. now is the apocalypse troll. Out again. Uh, out Easy again. Hardcover. That's right. Yeah. This is a reissue. Uh, it originally came out in mass market uh, original, I believe. No, no, it's not. It's it was hard. It
1: was originally released in hardcover. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: It was originally released in this one.
0: Yeah. So. Uh,
1: with, with the interesting green screen effect. Yeah. Ooh, was, it's got green. I got in it upside in it. down. See through yeah. book. So, yeah. Okay. There it is.
0: Um, I probably have one of these. So there's an yeah. interesting sort of history behind how this book because you wrote this book before the fall of the Soviet Union
1: yeah um, the first
0: revision of it right
1: this this is actually was written before Mutineers moon um and was the third solo book that uh, Jim bought from me um after um Mutineers moon and the armageddon inheritance the the original tri- the original triad was uh dahak and well duo i guess was dahak and and ludmilla um and it kept getting sort of nudged aside uh by by other projects um i think it was not released until what i think it's 99 yeah so it was like 10 years yeah. uh from the time that he bought it because i think he bought it, it he bought it in either Either late in '89 or early in '90, um, and uh, it was it was great for me because you know he was getting first author deals on on the prices that what he was paying for the books, but it was at the same time it was providing me with a cash flow that allowed me to start doing this full time out of the gate. Uh, I mean, from the time that uh, from the time that Insurrection came out. I have supported myself uh, full-time as a writer, which is not common, um, and, you know, and and I like to think that part of it is the, the quality of the work, but I also have to acknowledge that Jim Bain probably knew more about how to bring along a new author than almost anybody else out there. Uh, in terms of, of marketing decisions and, and placement. Um, I was totally, totally just devastated to fall into his hands and see my career tank, you know, that like, you know, kind of thing. Uh, Jim was great. Uh, I didn't always agree with him, um, but I would say that at least half of the times I disagreed with him, I eventually found out he was right. Um, like, okay, okay. Can I, tell, can I tell my favorite Jim Bain story?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. He originally didn't buy Mutineer's Moon or the Armageddon inheritance. And he sent me this long list of things that were wrong with them and that I needed to do. And I was like, I don't know, Jim. And he says, well, I tell you what, we, could, we can publish these two under a pen name and then you write one the way I'm telling you to write it and we'll see which ones do better. I said, well, let me think about it. So I went away and I looked at his letter. Well, you know, all right, 10% of what he's saying, he's he's right on about. Okay, yeah, all right, I can see, yeah. Okay, another 15% I could probably stand to change if that meant he'd write the check, okay? But the other 75% of what he wants, he's just like, he's totally out to lunch on that, you know? But how do I tell somebody who's been in the publishing business, as long as he has that I, the guy who, you know, um, uh, insurrection hadn't even come out yet, you know, uh, is, is a better judge, you know, than he is. I said, okay, fine. So I went down, I I did the 10% that, that, that I thought he was right about. I fixed that part. I held the 15% that I get, felt that I could stand. That was going to be my, my, my reserve for making concessions to him kind of thing. And then I went through and did a global re-edit changing do not to don't and was not to wasn't and whatnot uh, all the way through the book wherever it appeared in dialogue. And and I'm actually, I've always had a fairly conversational narrative style. I've always used contractions there but I went at it with a vengeance this time. And then I sent the manuscripts back to Jim and I said, Jim, you know, I've thought about what you said and I've given effect to some of your requirements. And in the process I've shortened the books by about 7,000 words each. What do you think? He's like, oh, this is exactly what I wanted, you know, kind of thing, and he bought it. And I always meant to tell him (laughs) about that. What All I really did was change the word count, Jim. Um, But then we lost him. Uh, So I'm sure, you know, somewhere he knows now. And he's probably, you know, I still, I got a gotcha in there, you know. But I loved Jim. Well, Um,
0: he's probably used to wanting writers to do like the impossible and then getting 10% of It's like, you know, gravy. Yeah.
1: Well, so I know maybe that
0: maybe he fooled you. I don't well,
1: know. Oh God. <laughs> uh, when, when, um, he started reading on Basilisk station, I'm sitting there in my office. I'm working the phone rings. That's the first me. honor Harrington book. The, it's the first honor Harrington. Yes. Book. And he's like, you can't call him that. And I said, call him what he says well everybody knows a haven is a safe place to be and a republic is the good guy manticores are man-eating beasts and kingdoms and empires are the bad guys you're gonna have to change it i said no that's kind of the whole point you know and and, and so we, we we discussed that for 50 minutes long distance from new york pre-cell phone days um and um and uh I said uh, I said I said I said, Jim, look, the bad guys do not wake up one morning and say, I know we'll call ourselves the omnivoracity of evil. Okay, you know, that's part of what's going on. He said Well, okay, it doesn't bother me as much as it did. I think you're still think you're wrong, but okay. And he hung up. I'm like, okay, fine. Five minutes later, the phone rings and it's Jim. He says, You made her ugly. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you made Honor Harrington ugly. I said, no, I didn't. He said, yes, you did. It says right here. I said, Jim, that's the way she sees herself. Keep going. And so there's silence, except for the riffling of pages. And he says, but that's like five pages of the manuscript later. Okay, this is what's going to be fixed in the reader's mind, you know, kind of thing. And I said, I said, Jim, uh, you know, uh, and he, he said, you don't understand. He said, Bane heroines have to be such that men lust after them and women <laughs> lust to be them. And I said, that's the most sexist thing I ever heard. He said, Sex sexist, schmexist that sells books, you know, and I was like, okay, fine. So I moved to the scene where, um, where Alistair McKeon sees her for the first time and reflects that the imagery in her file does not do justice, et cetera. So I moved it forward, like two pages in the, in the final novel. And i hung up the phone and i said okay we have now spent 90 minutes and he's like eight pages <laughs> yeah this is going to take a while not another peep out of him uh for the rest of the book but it was shortly after that that he handed me to tony with a uh, as a full time he said i'm going to make you one of one of tony's pets and i said really he said yeah and i said okay but why and he said. Because when Bob Heinlein sends me a manuscript and I say, there's a problem here, he says, okay, how do we fix it? When I tell you there's a problem, you say, oh, Jim, you know. And what Tony figured out is the way that my brain works is I have to find all of the potential uh uh-ohs of making a change. What it's going to interject into the story that's going to have to be changed or where it's going to be, a, uh, you know, go against the grain of what I'm doing here before I can consider the positives of including it. That doesn't mean I'm rejecting it out of hand. It means I'm going, well, it's going to be a problem if I go here. It's going to be a problem there. It's going to be a problem over there. And I'm thinking aloud. So that's why Tony doesn't do story conferences, never didn't do story conferences on the phone with me. Uh, she would send them to me <laughs> in written form so i could do all of that before i i wrote my answer um, yeah. which is wandering. Well, that's, you know, yeah
0: that's the it, it's a bit at this point david it's a bit of a of beyond even stereotype that david will take every possible avenue and and like a like a particle that's that's arriving at its uh eventual position um and, and he'll present most of them in prose. Yeah. So, yeah. well,
1: well, Tony, Tony, me At Tony some was,
0: length until you, you get to the spaceship I, battle.
1: Well, I, I yes, I said, Tony will say there's no exploding starships in this book. How will you know it's yours? Um, but the, um, I remember Tony said to me one time, she said, you know, one thing that I've discovered is that it seems like 90% of the times I make a suggestion and you say, yeah, I tried it that way and it didn't work. And then you explain why it didn't work. And I realize you're right. <laughs> you know, but I'm like, oh, only 90%? She said, don't push it. <laughs> you know? uh, well,
0: I don't know, but I mean, in my opinion, Basilisk Station is almost a perfect example of its kind and kind of a little classic, so whatever it was, you know, whether Honor's ugly or not in it, it's a damn good <laughs> book. So, I just remember her almond eyes and there was like, there was something about coffee. That's my
1: main thought about she Honor. Didn't, she didn't like coffee. Yeah. And, and people are like, and I'm like, anybody who reads that book should recognize the work of a recovering addict, mm. where, where her dislike for coffee is concerned. And a re- recovering addict who unfortunately or fortunately depending how you look at it has fallen off the wagon laps back into the the demon
0: yeah so all right well this book is uh, the apocalypse troll is um even though it you did do some revision on it in the 90s um yeah. as things went along and uh it it's remarkably fresh you know i just read it uh i, I had never read it i just read it um yesterday and um you know it it could be a modern weber right now it's 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 quite good even uh, there's a few things that you know that there's tapping on keys and things like but it's just uh and and it's really interesting in that it is set in 2007 um and so in a way it is an alternate timeline it could maybe go in with your and uh it, it could go into the uh that that other series you did the yeah. Guardian series
1: with Guardian Jacob. Series. Yeah. Yeah. I've so. thought about it. I've thought about it. Um, you know, because we could have yet another split universe where this would be a fairly significant change, you know, uh, kind of thing. Um, but, but-
0: you, and you talk about the, and, and uh, I mean, we won't, I don't know if it's not really a big giveaway since we say mm-hmm. it on the back cover, but, you know, um, it most of the book that well, starts in space in the far future and most of it takes place on earth in our basic time uh, and among our military yeah uh, specifically the navy a lot
1: and, yeah. and other places uh, the marines Every, in, uh, yes yeah, the marines. Yeah. yeah 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 um it was i really enjoyed writing the book because it let me do some some but uh, Sharon was really pissed off of me when Biltmore House got firebombed uh, outside Asheville. Um, and she she was much less upset over the fact that St. Joseph's Hospital was burning to the ground. And I was like, honey, that just doesn't speak well of you. <laughs> you know. um, but I actually had somebody the other day who uh, complained to me. They obviously hadn't read the copyright date. they they had complained to me about it as you know you're just trying to capitalize on the the polarization of society today and so forth when the when the the cyborg from the future begins inflaming no it's
0: prescient it's really i was like wow they've got some things right here
1: but i was like i was i was like i was like no actually i wrote this book like 30 years ago you know kind of thing um I think maybe part of it is that, is my love for history, because I think that when historians project, they tend to do it more accurately than just blue sky, I'm gonna write a novel, I don't really know history, I'm gonna write a novel where this and this and this are true in the future, even though they're not true today. If you have a grasp of the flow of history and the way that people historically have responded uh, to given situations, then I think it gives you more of a platform for deciding how your characters are going to respond and how your society is going to grow uh, and move. Now, it can also be blinders, okay? It can also be like, well, they never did it that way before, so they'll never do it that way now, you know, kind of thing. Um, and I think that it can be a... Ser- okay, I think that near future science fiction, something like The Troll, uh, is a wonderful... Uh, Medium for social criticism, okay? Uh, I really did not set out to do any social criticism in The Troll. I set out to write uh, uh, a book that would be an adventure novel and it would be like, how does an alien who can telepathically influence people destabilize a society? It finds the existing fault lines and drives wedges into them to make it worse, okay? But I really don't think that anything other than fairly near-future science fiction is a very good avenue for social criticism in one regard. And that is the tendency that people have to project current-day problems 200, 300, 1,000 years into the future. Marion Zimmer Bradley, I know there's some other problems with her these days, but she was really bad about giving characters in her, her dark Over novels who were Terrans. They were dealing with exactly the same glass ceiling that women were dealing with in the 1960s and the 1970s. To me, that speaks very poorly both for the society and for women, okay? Uh, and so, When I wanted to make a comment on the stupidity of of excluding women from roles because they're women, um, my approach to it is to simply, it's a done deal that they're not excluded. That's so much a done deal that nobody thinks about it one way or the other. It's a total non-issue. The example that I like to use is that it has... The, is that the, the question of, of, of sexual equality and gender freedom uh, has all of the burning significance for Honor Harrington's time that Pharaoh's policy towards the Hittites has for us, okay? It was settled 2,000, 1,500 years before she was born. Now, I also created Grayson under a very special set of circumstances to give sort of the foil for that situation, but Honor Harrington and the way that I write uh, female uh, protagonists or even female characters in general uh, in my science fiction, they're all part of that, that you show people that this is the future by making it so totally the future in your books. You know, basically what you're saying is wake up and get with the program. Okay, and I've told people. I've said, you know, that, you know, societies that don't extend uh, full participation to to their their women, uh, to to anybody, um, they're denying themselves fifty percent of their potential capital, human capital, in intelligence and in everything else, and down the road that will cost them in terms of where they are compared to societies that said we're more interested in what's in your head than how your chromosomes are arranged okay um and that's a little bit of of ludmilla in in the troll too
0: so yeah that is the uh, because uh, she essentially saves the human race um. <laughs> <laughs> that's what she does you know or doesn't maybe yeah yeah we'll yeah see.
1: But well, she uh, yeah, she's um, uh, she's serving in a military where the, the commander of the task force that she's that she's with at the opening of the book is a woman. Um, the crew, the three-person crew of her fighter, there's one guy with what is probably my favorite name I've ever hung on a character to date, Anwar O'Donnell. Uh, it's just <laughs> you know such a wonderful glitching of 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 cultures um but uh, she's also uh a full colonel um who like honor looks a lot younger than her age in her case uh it is because of a uh an alien symbiote mm-hmm. that kills like 99 plus percent of the people that mm-hmm. it uh infects uh but the 0.1 percent that it doesn't kill uh, acquire all sorts of interesting uh, uh, physical side effects including apparently immortality um, uh, and they and and they pass it to their children um, so she's she's what they call a Thusala, short for methuselah um, and so that you know she is a highly highly experienced um, uh, fighter pilot uh, at the beginning of the book so it's not like I just picked somebody at random and dumped them on the planet to uh to I did my you know I I, I explained why she could do what she could do but partly because it's like okay I'm a David Weber heroine I can do anything um but well it turns out she's not 18 Um, No,
0: no, no, which is is
1: a shock for Richard Aston when he pulls her out of the, out of the water and has to get her out of her spacesuit. And he's, he's like 49. No, no. He's like, he's like 50, 50 plus. He's about to retire from the Navy. yeah. Yeah and Uh, so he's
0: he's he's feeling icky because he's so attracted to
1: (laughs) i'm not supposed to feel that way about a 19 year old bad bad richard you know
0: turns out she's older than he is
1: yeah she's about she's about she's close to twice his age she's 85 or something you know uh she's older than that when she allow for the relativity effects of all the time she spent traveling at near light speed If Um,
0: if they ever do get together she's the one robbing the cradle
1: Oh absolutely, absolutely And she and she really has a thing for uh, for uh, t-shirts for the the the, the, tie, the, the printed t-shirts. Um, and I you know I, I like her a lot. I think it shows in the way that the way that I wrote the, uh, wrote the book. Um, I like Aston too, but he's really their partnership all the way through um so before we
0: can we talk about the setup and uh just just give a little short pricey of what what the story is we -hmm. start uh with a battle and it's in the the human forces are closing in on the uh, kangas uh on their their final three worlds after 500 400 years of intermittent battling or
1: constantly. well it hasn't has been all that intermittent um okay let me let me one of the things you have to understand about the kangas is they had a really unhappy planetary childhood um and they have come to the conclusion they had they, they shared their planet with another uh sentient tool using species um and eventually and they hated each other And eventually the Kangas won and wiped out the other species. Um, And they believed, they had come to the belief that God was a Kanga um, and that therefore any, you know, and that these creatures who hadn't looked like Kangas were servants of the devil. Uh, So then they finally start exploring other worlds and they find other sentient species which are not Kangas. And their response is to wipe them out. And so they have been genociding races for a couple of centuries, maybe three, before they discover Earth. Um, and they, they do their damnedest to genocide Earth, but um, we are the most advanced species they found so far. All the others have been either pre-technic or very early technology and they have decided that this is a dispensation of god that they can find these guys and get them early so then they run into us and we're not as advanced as they are but we're advanced enough that their initial probe gets the crap shot out of it um, and we capture some of their technology and that's really when when the war uh, begins Uh, so humanity has tried to talk to the kangas humanity has tried to find some way to not kill everybody in sight. Um, And what really, really kind of convinced humanity that it wasn't gonna work was that one of Earth's first extrasolar colonies, we began expanding after we began encountering the Kangas and the faster than light technology at that point was crude enough that it took 30, 40 years between, between attacks. But they bioengineered a weapon, the symbiote that Ludmilla uh, has, and released it on the planet. And they expected it to kill 100% of the humans on the planet. And it almost did. And that was the point at which humanity said, OK, there's no point in trying to talk to these people, not if they're willing to employ that kind of a weapon. So from that point on, it was a genocidal str- struggle from both sides. Um, And the task force that Ludmilla is with is headed back for overhaul. And it's only a part of the squadron that originally it it was assigned to. Um, And everything is cool. I mean, you know, the Kangas have been driven back. They've been driven back. They're basically the last three systems. They're under siege. You know, it's either they're gonna get wiped out or they're finally gonna have to talk to us, et cetera. When they encounter a Kanga task force way the hell off the beaten path and much farther up into the multi-dimensional space uh, than the Kanga who are very cautious ever go and they they go in pursuit when they realize that the course these folks are on is headed for earth but in the course of the pursuit they realize also that the Kangas are going for what they call a takashita transition which no one's ever done to the best of anyone's knowledge which is sort of an esoteric manipulation of their multi-drive multi-dimensional drive technology which will actually allow you to travel in time and they realize that what the kangas are doing is they're trying to get to earth before earth develops its technology and wipe out humanity before humanity ever becomes a threat so they go in pursuit. Um, And there is a space battle. It's, what, would you say the first 10% of the book? Yeah. Is it that much? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And ultimately, there are two survivors from both fleets. There's Ludmilla, who crash lands in the middle of the Atlantic, uh and fortunately for her i was writing the book so she landed right <laughs> next to a sailboat with a guy who was single handing yeah. across the atlantic that's uh, true.
0: but i mean her guidance
1: system had yeah that's true the guidance it, system it is under, explained and it's not just yeah. out of nowhere that she no made. no it's the, the 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 guidance system the escape pod in her fighter is programmed to to head for help yeah. and it sees the boat so it, it it homes in on it yeah uh but then on the other side is the troll, the apocalypse troll. And the troll is...
0: It is not a Kanga.
1: No, it is not a Kanga. It is something else entirely. Basically, the Kangas have discovered that humans are better at physics and the hard sciences, and the Kangas are better at the biological sciences. But they've also discovered that humans are more flexible in combat. We're more willing to take risks. And so we're basically better at fighting than they are which was really hard for them to internalize after successfully wiping out numerous, numerous uh, species. So they decided it had to be something they, inherent. They were more species than you have bestsellers. <laughs> I don't think so. No, no, no. No, no. Uh, but you're still they, up on the kangas. No. I think I'm still up on the kangas right. in there. All right, anyway. But, uh, so what they do is they think that uh, it must be something inherent in the way human brains work. So they clone human brains and install them in cyborg fighting machines. Um, And uh, they have their own name for them, but the humans who encounter them call them trolls. Um, And unlike Ludmilla, who winds up basically with nothing but the clothes on her back, which admittedly are sort of a really super advanced back suit and her sidearm, the troll has an entire like 10,000 ton uh, fighter uh, complete with combat mechs and and whatnot. Um, Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for him, he's also discovered that we have nuclear weapons. And so even with a 10,000 ton fighter, he's not real happy about the thought of going out where nuclear weapons can get at him because eventually we might get lucky, okay? and in fact, uh, a U.S. Navy task group shoots down like four or five uh, troll fighters, just like his, uh, when they uh, when they come down over the Atlantic um, with the, trying to get the Kangas into position to release their bio weapon. Um, so, the and this, that's the troll
0: yeah. is. I, I mean, you said it, but he, the troll is is a human uh, is human bio t- brain tissue that's yep. that's been warped and made into this this horribly resentful <laughs> yeah
1: the the only, the only people angry that, thing the only people trolls hate more than kangas who control them and are responsible for their kind of twisted existence mm-hmm. is the normal humans who they're because that's where they came from Okay, and that's who has been killing them for you know 150 200 years now uh, in combat, as they're being forced by their alien creators to go up against the species from whence they were in a sense stolen, and they hate both of them uh, with they hate both of them with the kind of passion that is only possible for someone who can never hope to rebel against the controls programmed into them on, on literally a genetic level by their Kanga creators. However, our troll discovers that, how many of you have seen, um, well, okay. Um, the, the last Terminator movie with the Terminator who no longer has a function. OK, because Skynet's been destroyed, John's dead, you know, etc. cetera. Uh, that's kind of where the troll is. He realizes, wait, there are no Kangas to give me any orders anymore. That means I can decide what I'm going to do. And what he decides he's going to do will not work out well for the rest of humanity if he gets away with it. Um, and that's probably as much... Pump priming as we we need to do for people who like like to find out what happened in books. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well look, but a that's that's more about seriously. Yeah. Symbiote. The interesting thing is that
0: while the trolls are sort of human uh at least Kanga technology mixes, yeah. Um Ludmilla, our heroine, is in fact sort of a human uh Kenga technology mix because she's
1: uh her, she's the descendant her, her. of this her ancestor survived the symbiote yeah. uh and passed it on to her. And the thuselas are kind of resented by the normal humans around them because they are effectively immortal. So so far as as so far as Ludmilla is concerned knows, no thusala has ever died of old age. The symbiote doesn't approve of them dying of old age. And so it keeps fixing them when they you know, the symbiote's not aware, but it's like, okay, uh, the host is slowing down. I got to fix that, you know, kind of thing. You know, uh, David will be producing seven hundred fifty thousand a year for the next two centuries because he has a symbiote. You know, <laughs> um, but it also um, it um, it helps uh, heal wounds. Uh, it speeds uh, uh, recovery times. Uh, Ludmilla survives what should have been a mortal wound when she shot down. Uh, because of her symbiote now the bad news is <laughs> that the symbiote does this by using up its own resources and when it reaches the tipping point it begins scavenging the host and it will go right on scavenging the host till they both die if they're in a situation so milla probably wouldn't have made it without Aston pulling her out of the water and feeding her chicken soup a whole, uh, lot of chicken a whole lot of chicken soup because the symbiote is like really, really hungry. Um, but um, yeah, and the other thing that it does is um, it enhances uh, neural impulses. Uh, uh, uh neural impulses move faster than than uh, normal human. So Mila grew up on a heavy grav planet and she has the the um, the uh, symbiote uh, boosting her her reaction speeds. She's quick. She's really really quick. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the entire book is when the the, the marines are like, a oh, little girl, should go play with her dolls," okay, and she picks the biggest toughest guy in the entire company that they're building and says step out here on the mat with me and basically turns him into a pretzel in like 15 seconds flat um but um she's she is about as far away from home as it is possible for a human being to be Hell, it's not possible for them to be that far away from home except in fiction. Um, and you find out as the novel goes along that she's even farther away from home than you thought she was um, in terms of, of, of where she is and how this is all going to, to work out. And she is the only one of her kind that exists in this universe. And if her arrival on the planet means. That, assuming we survive, we get like 80 years warning before the Kangas turn up. Plus, we get our hands on the, hopefully, on the trolls' um, technology. So one may assume that when the Kangas do turn up, things are not going to happen at all the way they happened in, in you know, which means that she's probably the only one of her kind who will ever exist Um, because of the fact that the Kangas will not be dusting a planet with the symbiote. Um, So, I mean, yeah, she's really, and when Aston begins to realize just how alone she is, uh, it has an enormous impact on his I guess respect for her is probably the the best way uh, to put it. Um, she and she and Aston, when they start putting together a strike force, the certain folks in 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 around the world have to be brought in on what's going on, but they have to be very cautious about it because the troll can read minds. Uh, but. Uh, the the guy who is the um, the executive officer of the uh he's actually the commander of the company Aston is the commander of the operation but he's like Aston's second in command is this kind of tough as nails black uh marine major kind of thing uh who's he was up for command of his uh his uh, force recon battalion and he gets pulled out and to some wuss assignment you know kind of thing he's like oh okay this is better but anyway He realizes that Aston and Ludmilla are the same under the skin because they've seen so much combat. Uh, Aston was a SEAL before he uh, got too old to run around with the teams. Um, Ludmilla is a fighter pilot who's been in the Navy and fighting trolls for literally 60 years kind of thing. And he realizes that they're watching these tough young men getting into shape with exactly the same eyes. Okay. Um, I think that's one of the things that I really wanted to establish in, in this book is that even though physically she's like 19, 20 uh, by our standards and he's in his 50s, the physical envelope doesn't mean very much compared to how much they have in common mm-hmm. in terms of what drives them, what motivates them, what they've seen and done uh, in their, in their lives. Um, I hope, yeah. I hope that comes through.
0: Yeah. yeah. And they're both people that are, when, when trouble comes upon them, they, do something about it there yeah. and she's just like you know the embodiment of implacable you know she she's a troll killer oh yeah that's what she does <laughs> you know yes that's what she does her job and it is and if it wasn't her job she'd probably do it for free <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah well you
1: know uh well you know after and
0: she's, her- it, it takes her a while to back off from from even to to because aston helps her to um to oh, well what do you think the troll tra- strategy is and for you know she she just figures trolls kill people i must kill troll yeah but then she backs off a little bit and, oh, it, maybe it's a little more subtle and it wants you know and and they they do figure out what it might be
1: well what after. she's concerned what she's really concerned about is that it the troll may immediately act to carry out the kangas plans even though the kangas themselves have a minor accident called Ludmilla that prevents them <laughs> from doing it but she she's afraid that uh, that the troll will um and it's Aston who says to her okay look if that's what he was going to do why haven't we seen him anywhere yet uh kind of and oh what's really maddening for her is Aston is single handing across the Atlantic on a sailboat when he picks her up um and uh the uh the the Ludmilla and and the trolls are throwing around multi-megaton nuclear warheads in atmosphere because these are warheads that are designed to kill super dreadnoughts in space okay kind of thing so these are like some really 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 big explosions which are fortunately really 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 high up uh but they're also uh the emp from them is wreaking havoc on like passenger planes flying across the atlantic and also on Aston's radios, um, which means that they are single-handing across the Atlantic and she has no idea what is happening in the rest of the world where this troll is now loose while she is sailing slowly (laughs) across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, I was mean to do that. I really was i i admit it but you know and it's and it's very very fortunate that she winds up with aston because aston knows a lot of people in the service and in the intelligence community and so forth um and so he is able to (laughs) he's able to sort of at least uh convince some of his superiors that he's not totally insane uh, about this this good looking uh this yeah this tough as nails marine colonel here you know uh laid uh, Lyudmila Leonovna well a Russian huh no oh, no no she's not well actually <laughs> you know god kind of um, from earth
0: yeah. well it's um I, I the like you know your your reader was talking, uh, there is a lot of of present day resonance in the book, which is interesting to me. This, um, the way that the troll manipulates the, um, the, the, um, some of the national issues that are going on uh, even in that day. Um,
1: well, I think that's probably because when I was working on the troll strategy, he had to find issues That he could drive that already existed he couldn't just you know he had he had basically he had to approach the task of how do you destroy a society by recognizing its internal flaws that already exist because flaws exist in the healthiest of societies it's the human beings are flawed therefore there will be flaws But he he had to figure out which ones he could manipulate most readily. And the ones that he could manipulate most readily are the ones that generate the most resentment. Um, And so he was, he, he basically, if you look at it right now today, on both sides of our political schism, the real anger is driven by resentment and fear, okay? Uh, I'm not saying, you know, this side is more responsible than that side. What I'm saying is that the polarization that we have right now is fueled on both sides by resentment and fear of the other side. Um, And that's the way that societies generally come unglued, OK, um, so that's the way that the troll drove humanity, at least in the United States, um, in order to facilitate putting his tools in control of the country and using that as his platform against the, the rest of the, the rest of the planet. So if there is a resonance with where we are today it's because the currents that have produced our current um, resentment and and anger and hatred um, without a troll's intervention are the same ones that he reached for when I wrote the book 30 years ago and made worse on his own. So what you're looking at is a confluence between 30 years of of. of I hesitate to use the, we use the word progress, but of of uh, movement um, in the in the uh, U.S. society that you and I are living in, as opposed to uh, a year or so in the trolls universe, with somebody consciously, deliberately driving those issues with the advantage of advanced technology and at least limited telepathy and the ability to influence human minds. So we got largely to the same place, but in the trolls universe, it was kind of like brought up with uh, growth accelerants in a greenhouse as opposed to developing in the wild. Okay. Um, So it was not a case of my saying, well, this is where we'll be in 2021. Uh, It was a case of my saying, where will we be in a dysfunctional society? it turned out to be welcome to 2021, (laughs) Uh, but, and and it's not a particular, um, it's certainly not me trying to take sides uh, in, in where we are today. I mean, I have my views and I think most people who know me know what they are. Um, And any um, writer's views um, infuse his writing okay but i really and truly do not deliberately write in a polemical sense that's not how i approach it i approach it. i'm going to tell a good story now what makes a good story for an author is something that's going to be compatible with how he sees the world either it's going to be good it worked out the way i saw it or bad it's blowing up and somebody has to fix it Okay, you can't you can't help that. It's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it's difficult to write a sympathetic villain whose mindset is completely different from your own. Uh, It's hard to hard to have the character ring true sort of thing. But one of the things that I've noticed um, on Facebook, I, I tend for some reason to have dumpster fires on Facebook. And I think one of the reasons for it is that my books appeal to a wide spectrum of, of political views, um, left and right. And so what's happening is they are looking at a Facebook post because I put it up and they read my books. And that brings them into mortal combat with one another, which I wish they wouldn't do, but, it, but it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that it is um i find myself generally not always but generally being the voice of moderation uh, because one of the things that the troll is wiping out here is the notion of uh, any kind of uh, nuanced discussion across political or racial divides um, and I have told people many times, you know, I, I can't remember the last time I learned something significant talking about a subject with somebody who already agreed with me on it. Um, and I think that the the fact that we are no longer able to hold conversations, uh, even with those with whom we, we politically differ, is a huge part of the of the problem that we have it's much it is far easier to demonize people on the other side of a divide when you're not talking to them when anything that you are hearing from them is being filtered through social media or the uh partisan news broadcasts left or right or whatever rather than in a direct face-to-face exchange with them where you can say well wait a minute what about and they say well i didn't mean that you know what i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah. um uh, and it's that loss of it's that loss of context and nuance that makes it possible for people to simply demonize everybody on the other side of a political debate and I find that dismaying i find it to some extent morally repug- well to a very large extent i find it morally repugnant, and I try to avoid it um I don't always succeed because as I said earlier about humans being flawed. The troll, however, is creating a situation in which nobody's thinking about that. Um, And Well, he's driving
0: it to the the extremes he can.
1: Yeah, and and fortunately for the United States, he has a limited range that he can do this over. So he's really working on only one region uh while he is while he is uh he is doing his dastardly stuff um but
0: uh well clearly you have a deep and abiding authorial disdain and hatred for biltmore house and gardens though
1: no i do not neither i do not neither That's, um
0: that comes listen, across in your prose i'll tell you that
1: hey 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 hey! you know it's actually no they're upset that somebody firebombed biltmore yeah yeah yeah, not as upset as Sharon was. But, yes. you know. Of course, Sharon is like. I had given Sharon um, the manuscript of um, uh, "Mutineer's Moon." This was shortly after I'd met her when she was still working in the bookstore, and I walked into the bookstore. And I was talking to somebody else, and this stripped book comes flying across the store and hits me in the back of the head. And I turn around, and it's Sharon. And I'm like, what was that for? She's, you killed Sean. And I'm like, well, you know, excuse me. He's character in a book. You killed Sean. You know, she was she still gives me grief over that you know and i told her i said you know i named an entire continent-sized nature preserve on the capital planet of the of the empire for her for him you killed sean and i'm like okay fine you know be that way um so yeah there's the, the occasional authorial decision that she's like not real real keen on oh that's um, uh that's that's the
0: roughest criticism when they throw a book at you but, oh yeah
1: well at least it was a paperback i mean you know <laughs> yeah, right. was it was a copy of like jane's fighting ships they i you know wouldn't <laughs> my writing career would have been cut short <laughs>
0: well, she chose her weapon for it she chose it she wished to have yeah uh, out now at booksellers everywhere is the apocalypse troll by david weber um it's an old new book um it's a really fun read. It's as fresh today as it was the, the day it came out, if you ask me. <laughs> anyway, I liked it, and I, I hadn't read
1: it before, and I was like, heck, might as well oh, I did. Weber. I did have somebody tell me, one of the reviewers say, this reads like very early Weber, and I was like, well, gosh, I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Well,
0: thank you so much for talking with us about the apocalypse. Oh,
1: thanks for having me.
0: Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years, they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic Mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war, the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities, such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising Vengeance. Now, Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's uncompromising honor.
2: HMS Imperator in hyperspace. Will there be anything else, ma'am? Honor looked up from her plate at the quiet question. James McGinnis stood at her shoulder, holding the carafe of cocoa, his gray eyes dark. No, Mac, she shook her head. No, that's fine. I think we're both done. Are you sure? He tried so hard to keep the anxiety out of his voice, but she tasted it anyway. Yes, she said as gently as she could. I'm sure, thank you. She reached out to lay one hand gently on his forearm. That's from Nimitz, too. Yes, ma'am. It came out husky, and he set the cocoa on the dining cabin table, then ducked his head. Just, just buzz if you change your mind. I will. She tried to smile at him. She failed. I promise. He looked at her a moment longer, then nodded once and disappeared, and Anna looked back at the largely untouched food on her plate. The steak had been perfect, with the cool red center she loved. The salad, the baked potato, the stein of old Tillman, all the components of one of her favorite meals. And she'd eaten less than half of it. She gazed at it for a few more seconds, then sighed and pushed back her chair. She stood, gathering Nimitz into her arms and crossed the deck. She stood in the hatch between the dining cabin and her day cabin, and looked at the portrait on the bulkhead above her desk. Her mother had taken that picture in the Whitehaven family chapel. Honor stood between Hamish and Emily, holding Emily's hand, Her eyes glowing as Hamish faced Reverend Sullivan and recited his wedding vows. Nimitz rode her shoulder, and Samantha perched on Hamish's. And she tasted Nimitz's pain as he too looked at the people they would never see again. Despite his thick coat, she thought she could feel his ribs, but that was probably imagination. Both of them were losing weight, but it had been less than three days since that last hideous afternoon at Whitehaven. She knew why McGinnis was worried just as she knew he too was grieving. She wished there was some way, any way she could ease her stewards, her friends' pain, but there wasn't. She didn't have it in her. She had nothing in her, except a vast singing emptiness where the people she loved should have been. Nothing except the single unwavering purpose left to her a deadly determination, colder than the vacuum outside her flagship's hull, more focused and far more lethal than any warhead or broadside grazer. She had no idea what would happen to her and to Nimitz when that purpose, that determination, had been discharged. She didn't care. It was all she and Nimitz had, all the universe had left them. She didn't know what the opposition would be, had less current information on her objectives' defenses than she'd had before any other operation in the last ten T-years. But she knew two things. She knew the Sollies couldn't possibly expect her this soon, and she knew she would accomplish her purpose, her mission, even if hell itself stood in her way. What happened after that could take care of itself. She stood another long, still moment, looking at that image of murdered love cradling her beloved dead. Then she set Nimitz gently on the perch beside her desk, sat in her own chair, keyed her terminal, and punched up Grand Fleet's order of battle.
0: That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jankiewicz and a train hopper load of pristine beanie babies and troll dolls, plus a dozen Robert A. Heinlein bobbleheads and thanks and praise for David Weber, author of *The Apocalypse Troll. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.